Welcome to The Sleep Sessions. I'm your host, Dara Whitaker. This podcast is a place for women to share their successes and challenges of adapting to life and sleep after a new baby. Whether you're expecting your first or a mother of five, you can listen in weekly to learn, feel supported, and celebrate each other's unique experiences. If you're expecting and you're not really sure where to start with planning for postpartum, I'd love to help. My Postpartum Thrive Guide is the perfect tool to help you plan for what you'd like life to look like in the first few months after coming home with your new baby. It covers things like visitors, physical recovery, building a support team, mental health, and so much more. You can learn more on my website, thesleepsessions.co. Today I'm speaking with Allison about her postpartum hemorrhage that ultimately led to an emergency hysterectomy following the birth of her first son. She also shares about her journey to becoming a mom for the second time thanks to surrogacy. I wanted to give a warning at the beginning of this episode that it covers some traumatic events and it might be triggering for some. Hi Allison, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Can you start by telling me a little bit about you and your family? Sure. I live in Minneapolis and work full-time in marketing. I have been married to my husband of seven years, Aaron, who also works in marketing. (laughs) And we have two boys. Nolan is four and Levi is two. Awesome. Is there anything listeners should know about your birth, either of your birth stories? Yes, I have um, very unique birth stories in both boys. Um, It's a pretty complicated question for me and just a warning to your listeners, there's a bit of trauma involved. So with Nolan, he was my first pregnancy and it was actually blissfully boring. We had a just regular path to getting pregnant and, um, went into delivery, but after I had delivered him, um, I started to bleed and I had a postpartum hemorrhage a few hours after giving birth. So a postpartum hemorrhage for your listeners who don't know is, um, a complication that can happen with any delivery and happens in about 6% of deliveries in the U S and is the leading cause of maternal um, morality. So it's a very serious situation, one that we didn't expect to happen. And once the doctors determined that I was um, hemorrhaging, I was quickly rushed to surgery um, and didn't really have any time to process that, but ultimately woke up five hours later and they had to perform an emergency hysterectomy to save my life. So- The way that I describe that day is the happiest and saddest day of my life. Um, We became parents and we were so grateful and blessed to have a healthy baby boy, Nolan. Um, But at the same time, it was the saddest day because I wouldn't be able to have any more children on my own. And it became a really scary situation for me physically that we just hadn't anticipated. And I had spent time in the ICU, but coming home after going through that was just very different than what we thought it would be like. And the worries and concerns we had about taking care of an infant were 
just entirely different as I had to focus on my physical recovery as well. Yeah, I was going to say that that recovery itself from birth is one thing. And then adding in this major, major trauma and surgery that you went through, how was that recovery for you mentally? It was... It took a minute for me to process it mentally. So the first um, month or two, it really was about my physical recovery as we were trying to, I was trying to heal. At first, I couldn't even walk up the stairs or dress myself. So, um, you know, Aaron, my husband had to take on a lot of the responsibility of mothering and parenting while I physically recovered. But then he went back to work and I had to do both. And you just kind of, as all mothers have to do, you, you survive it and you are there for your child and put their needs above your own. So the first couple months was really about that physical recovery and, um, all the needs of taking care of an infant but then a couple months later I feel like I was able to mentally process and what that really was was a a grieving process that I went through um, because grief can take a lot of different forms and although I did not die and my baby did not die um, I had to grieve the idea of having more children in the way that I thought and that part of my life and my dream was taken away and I couldn't really I couldn't do anything about it so really going through the five stages of grief over the next six months and I mean even now today almost five years later I can cycle back through to that loss but mentally it was a really really challenging time and the way that I would describe it is just entirely bittersweet because every moment with Nolan was also representative of my last moment to do that with the one month old or three month old or, you know, putting away passies or bottles and those types of things that I think is hard for any mom as they grow. You're like, Oh, he's big. He's good. He's growing and he's doing new things, but then you're also putting away their, little little newborn clothes or toys or the baby swing and so all of that um, just felt even more like a loss or more like a a sad moment for me in the midst of being really happy and having so much joy of watching this baby grow and becoming a, a mom. Did you have a support team there to kind of help you through this time? I did. We had, um, our parents were around, although, um, our parents, my parents still work. So they were there as much as they could, but my mom, um, was able to rearrange her work schedule so that she would come every Wednesday, um, while Aaron was at work. So I had one day a week that I really relied on her to come and I would go to my therapy sessions, um, during that time, which was essential to be able to talk to a professional. Um, And I actually found a therapist who specializes in infertility. So um, she's helped women through a range of um, challenges from having families to having loss to having 
just difficulty processing just a range of complexity that come with that. So my mom really allowed me to do that and spend that time on myself um, while I was on maternity leave, which I think was so crucial to be being able to um, healthily process going back into the world and starting work again. Um, I can even imagine. Yeah, it was, it was intense. And I think it was really isolating more so than I think a lot of new motherhood can be really isolating. um, Because you're at home, most often for long periods of time with yourself and your baby. And then I had this so such a unique situation that no one really understood, rightfully so. But it's not like I could connect with other new moms about that piece because they were not experiencing anything to that level. Right. Yeah, it's hard to, it's even, I would imagine it would be hard to even open up to people who didn't have the same experience as you and kind of like talk about what you went through because you know that they're not able to identify Yeah, I had a lot of, I would say, triggers at that time. And some of my triggers, they weren't altogether rational. So if I'd be around other moms, and they'd be kind of complaining about things about parenting, in my head, I would be really resentful, like they don't have anything to complain about, they're able to have more children. (laughs) Or they would say what I would perceive as insensitive things about you know, put packing stuff away for baby number two. And there was just a lot of differences with our experience, even if they know what I had went through. And so the normal support of being able to connect with a community of women going through the same similar thing or having a baby and also being on maternity leave just wasn't really that helpful for me. So mm-hmm. it just further added to kind of that isolation and feeling very much alone with the loss and left to navigate it as best as I could. Um, But now looking back, I can, I know that a lot of that's on me. I don't blame other people. I'm not upset at them. Um, Friends, family, acquaintances, just the world at that time when I was so raw from what we had gone through and in that grief stage where I really, the hard thing about grief or going through a difficult time is you really have to do that work on your own. And I didn't communicate properly my needs or even just the ability now to give people grace for not knowing the right things to say. But at the time, it was just really painful. And, and people would accidentally do or say things that were really hurtful. But looking back on it, I just know that that's, that would be inevitable for the situation that we went through. Right. How was your husband during this time? I mean, you had it happen to you physically, but, you know, as your partner, he had to process this as well. So what was, what was his take on it? What, what was he feeling? So I've learned through talking to other, um, 
families and women, particularly with infertility, a lot of times men and women do process quite differently because while you're in this experience together, each person is experiencing it differently. Mm -hmm. And he did not have that sense of loss like I did of the ability to carry more children because he never was carrying the babies anyway. Right. Um, I also think with our society, you know, men are taught to be strong and taught to, you know, be the source of strength. So I think some of the pressure he felt was just as I was a mess and crumbling and fragile, like he had to be brave and strong and carry on and be the person who um, wasn't falling apart. (laughs) So he really was a trooper and was doing everything he could to help me, but we were processing differently and he did not experience from my perspective, he was not in a grief process. Like he was seeing me in pain and feeling definitely a loss, but he was almost, he didn't know how to help me either other Mm -hmm. than to be there for me and listen, but he did not feel it on that visceral level that I did. And he was also in survival mode. (laughs) Yeah. And he, you said that he went right back to work pretty much, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was how they gave him an extra week. (laughs) So he had two weeks home, but he had to restart normal life, even though I don't think either one of us were ready for him to restart normal life. Um, And so he was just busy and automatically occupied um, right away almost after everything we went through. Right. And how long was your maternity leave? So my maternity leave, they extended given the hysterectomy. So it was 16 weeks, which I do feel like 16 weeks is a really good amount for me. And I was grateful to have that extra time. I can imagine. How was it when you eventually went back to work? It was really um challenging not only handing my baby over to someone who was ultimately a stranger <laughs> at that time but i was still in this stage of grief and really wasn't ready to be around other people especially people who didn't know what i had been through so i'm really glad i went back to work and you kind of process through by being busy and returning to some aspect of normal life but because I work in an environment that there's a lot of women and there's a lot of young women it was hard to be around women who were having families of their own or having babies and I just kind of felt like I was constantly surrounded by fertility and people having quote-unquote normal family experiences so that part of it was really hard um but I did hit my groove um with sending Nolan to daycare and um getting used to going back to work I would say it took you know three to six months after I went back to work to really feel like we were in a good spot as a family and getting used to the new schedule of working full-time while having a small child. 
how was Nolan doing at this point with sleeping and feeding and kind of all the normal baby things? So Nolan has always been, thank goodness, a a really compliant child and he was a really compliant baby. I think maybe that was something that was given to me as a gift (laughs) that he was always and has always been right on the growth chart, right where he should be developmentally. And even illness wise, he's never had anything. I mean, knock on wood major, but he was sleeping through the night by seven weeks um, which really helped. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's all amazing. New parents. Yes, we had read Baby Wise before all this happened and really tried to do the eat, play, sleep method with him. And it worked like a charm. I um, liked it because it relies on your chi- child's hunger cues and other cues while kind of guiding them into this natural sleep cycle rhythm. Um, versus just kind of snacking or cluster feeding throughout the day. So it really worked for him, but it could also be because he was on formula and he was eating a lot. He's always been a big eater even to this day. So he quickly was big enough to sleep through the night. And uh, I'm just grateful that we got there fast with him because of everything else that was on my plate. He was a good little baby. That's great. And were you thinking prior to birth that you would want to try breastfeeding um, or did you anticipate going right to formula? No, we had anticipated that we would breastfeed. And I think I took a class or did some sort of, um, it was in our pre-birthing class at the OB clinic. Um, But after I delivered, And had the blood loss because of the volume of blood loss that I had immediately after delivering. A common complication is that your milk doesn't come in because of just that liquid um, (laughs) loss. Yeah, you don't have enough fluids. You don't have enough fluids. And so I did have, you know, he had the colostrum before I started bleeding. And then they brought him to me in the ICU and had me breastfeeding him very assisted because I was out of it and hooked up to a million different things but they and by they it was the OB staff really tried to facilitate breastfeeding and stimulation so that I would potentially be able to do it and I was able to get a little bit of milk but it never fully came in and so I would breastfeed him for the first two months. Um, Every time he would eat, I would breastfeed him for five minutes or so. And he would get some milk, but it was never enough to sustain him. So we started supplementing. And then at two months, he was very um, frustrated with me. (laughs) (laughs) milk, And so we just stopped that and went to all formula. Although we were lucky to have a few close friends donate formula to us because they were um, breastfeeding. And so we were able to give him like one bottle of breast milk through six months. So kind of did a combination of of things. And I feel really good about that. 
but we did our best. I'm honestly amazed that you even could breastfeed with all that you went through and all that your body was put through. That's, that's really incredible. You should be really proud of yourself. Thank you. It was really challenging because I had to pump every time after I fed him, even in the middle of the night and we were feeding him with, uh, uh, little dropper tube because they didn't want nipple confusion so the feeds would take like 45 minutes Mm. even with formula and then I would pump for half an hour and then he would need to do that again every couple hours so I mean that's all like that first month was just that intense cycle so looking back on it I I don't know if that was the right choice for me (laughs) as a new mom but I felt the responsibility or pressure to try and do my best for as long as we could. But I think the pressure that women face to breastfeed, I mean, the pressure that I received with everything I went through um, from the medical professionals to friends and family to coworkers, it's like they, the expectation is out there that you're, needing to try and to do it (laughs) I can't even believe that it's like cut me some slack here people yeah and that's where I'm very gentle with other women who make decisions to formula feed for whatever reason and I always tell them I formula fed both my children and it was fine totally (laughs) so the only person who straight up told me you don't need to breastfeed. You're, it will be okay. Was my OB who performed the surgery, and because she's the one person who knew that it was unrealistic given the amount of blood loss that I had, and everyone else was like, "Well, you're getting some milk. Like, keep trying." <laughs> I can't believe. And she that. was the one person who was most realistic. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness for her. Yes, yes, and I would try to share that with people like my doctor said (laughs) (laughs) and you know what my daughter still yeah we switched to formula when my daughter was six weeks old and Mm -hmm. it was really tough to get to that point where I was like this is okay and I feel okay about this but Mm -hmm. once we did it she's fine it's completely fine she's thriving and healthy and strong Mm -hmm. and, and just you know you could never look at a child and be like okay that one was breastfed and that one was formula fed absolutely it's it's such a debate and I feel like everyone needs to give themselves grace and listen to their gut and it really should be the mother's choice and no one else's because it's her body and it's her mental health too that I think gets overlooked a lot absolutely okay so I want to take a step back now in your introduction you mentioned that you have a second son can you talk about how you got to you know have your second baby yes so This is the other half of our story that is completely unique, but it's certainly happier part of our story. I always envisioned having a family with more than one child. Um, I grew up as a child of three kids in our family and loved the relationship I had with my siblings. And to this day, 
feel so close with them, especially my sister. So we're one year apart and wanted to provide that gift to Nolan. So after I had the hysterectomy, what they were able to do was save my ovaries. So it was a partial hysterectomy. So I still had my ovaries um, and the ability to have my own biological children through a process called gestational surrogacy. Um, The other options would be adoption. And then the last option or the third option would be to just have one child that we would revise our family's plans to be a single child family, which again is everyone's kind of personal decision. And with those three paths, everyone would maybe make a different decision. But for my husband and I, really wanting to give Nolan a sibling was something we wanted to do. And given that he was fully biologically ours, it was in our hearts that we would like to explore having a fully biological child through gestational surrogacy. But (laughs) about six months after Nolan was born, we started to kind of explore plan B through having appointments with fertility clinics and looking into surrogacy agencies um, and kind of exploring that path. But it quickly became really overwhelming and disheartening when I learned how complex it was and more than anything, how expensive it was because insurance doesn't cover any portion of it for the medical needs. So it kind of was a blow and I felt again, kind of hopeless and overwhelmed, but um, my sister who I'm super close with, um, she was in the recovery room when I first woke up after the hysterectomy and she said to me, don't worry, I'll have your baby (laughs) in those first moments. And I was so out of it at that time and not processing. I just kind of smiled. But six months later, after we started to explore the surrogacy path and we had all healed, she did come over one day and say that she would be willing to carry our child as a surrogate, which was everything I was hoping for, but too afraid to verbalize or didn't know how to ask her directly. But it was definitely my biggest prayer and on my heart all the time that she would be willing to do that for us. So she said yes. And we started going through this crazy intense process of gestational surrogacy um, and really started the process one year after Nolan was born. So he was one and started that process um, and it worked. So we were able to get healthy eggs retrieved from me and then we had embryos made with my husband's sperm and then they were implanted into my sister and her uterus that I did not have there's a lot of euphemisms and ways that you can describe this process to people or children and a lot of times they call it like she's the oven to bake our bread (laughs) just the (laughs) oven Um, Or I think we have a child's book called The Kind Koala (laughs) to explain to the children that we had to use her pouch. So um, (laughs) it's a a beautiful thing and the most selfless thing she could have ever done for us. But we um, had this unique experience where she was carrying a child that wasn't hers, but was 100% biologically ours. And then ultimately, she gave birth to our second son, Levi. Um, 
in July, which is two days after Nolan's, two days before Nolan's birthday and my original due date that I had with Nolan. Oh my gosh. So it was really special and very otherworldly and how things came together. But Levi's birthday is on July 8th. Then my sister's birthday is July 9th. And then Nolan's birthday is July 10th. So they're right, the three of them, right in a row. And I always just feel like that's a special sign of how connected they all are. Absolutely. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. That's really special. I mean, that just shows you the bond that they have. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as Levi's gotten older, we've, you know read books about how to tell them and just been kind of a part of our family where kids don't know that that's really unique or different they just know it as their their story so we talk about how he was in auntie dre's tummy and he just knows that it's like a fact of life and nolan knows that too and nolan remembers um going to the hospital and auntie dre being there so it's just really fun now to see them understand that and hopefully as they get older they'll start to understand it even better and appreciate it even more absolutely and did your sister have children of her own at this point no so she had never been pregnant or had a child that was a unique part of our circumstances I was really young when I had Nolan I was 27 and so to find a friend or family member um, to go down this path of finding a woman who we knew, knew that could carry the child just to help with a lot of the expenses that go with surrogacy um, was going to be really difficult because most of my friends and family had not even started their families at that point, let alone were done having their families. So we moved pretty quickly once she said she would like to do it because she wanted to also carry our child and then get on with her life and being able to have her own children. So it was really unique, but um, our fertility clinic was willing to work with us as long as she could pass all the typical screenings of any other gestational carrier. But technically it was a little bit more risky because she wasn't a proven carrier. She hadn't ever carried a baby or delivered a baby prior to Levi. Wow. And that must have just, I know you said that you were close with your sister prior to this, but this must have just brought you so much closer. Yeah. It's a bond like no other. She feels like it's part of her greatest life's work. Um, like what else could you do to make an impact than to literally give a gift of a child (laughs) to your sister and her husband and your nephew and so I love that she looks at it that way and I think as she sees our family and now sees the boys interacting and being little buddies it just creates that lasting joy for her too to see that right how was it when Levi first was able to come home from the hospital So I totally underestimated how hard it would be (laughs) because of my first postpartum experience was so hard. I thought, okay, well, this time I'm physically really well, (laughs) like other (laughs) women who are in that postpartum stage. I did not carry and deliver a baby. And I just thought it would be so much easier second time around. 
but it was exponentially harder just because I had a two-year-old and a newborn at the same time. And that was just an entirely different set of circumstances and was really, 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 really hard. Yeah. So it was not as smooth sailing with our postpartum time frame and my maternity leave on the second time around. What did your maternity leave look like the second time around? So second time around was similar in that Aaron went back to work right away. By right away, it was two weeks. And I was actually more isolated because my mom, who normally was able to help me, and I was able to count on one day a week, her mom got diagnosed and sick with pancreatic cancer at this on the like the week that Levi was born. So understandably, she had to be there for her and take her to all these appointments and her focus was really on caregiving for her mom. So I was alone with two children. No one went to daycare a couple days a week, but I had him home three days a week with me and the baby. And so it was just truly like grueling, long, exhausting days with a toddler and an infant. And it's kind of that type of exhaustion that you don't understand until you're in it. And looking back on it, I wish I would have done more planning for, but our surrogacy pregnancy was so intense in so many ways that I was just focused on that. (laughs) In addition to working, in addition to be a a mom of a one-year-old, that I didn't have the right plan in place or support in place once we brought Levi home. That's hard. I always, so after having my first and now I'm pregnant with my second, Mm -hmm. I look back on my experience during pregnancy with my first and I was, I was very like worried and stressed and planned all the wrong things. Mm -hmm. Um, I was focused on like the nursery and Mm -hmm. planning my birth and all these Mm -hmm. things that you just have zero control over. And I really wish Mm -hmm. that I would have focused more on that, like fourth trimester Mm -hmm. and just put together a good plan for support. um, And, Mm -hmm. and really tried to envision like what my life would look like at that point. Yeah, it is true that we just don't, have any structure or guide to plan postpartum I feel like the majority of women you don't know what you're getting into till you're there and then with every child you think oh well now I have the knowledge and experience that I've done it once before but it is a different dynamic with other children and then each baby is different and so I wish there would be more support and resources for women to think about this and learns what learn how to be realistic and what's worked for other women and families so that it's not the most overlooked piece, but it's like the biggest part of preparing for a baby. Right. Instead of focusing on the stuff and the, the things and the checklists about stuff because babies don't really need stuff. They need moms to be in a good place. Exactly. Exactly. It's more about taking care of yourself mentally for that short period of time Mm -hmm. so that you can take care of the baby. Mm -hmm. You know, the bouncy seat can wait. (laughs) Yeah. And this thing, and I think it's uniquely in American culture, this individualism, women are not supposed to have a baby by themselves or care for a baby 
in their own home by themselves. Like there's a reason. I mean, that saying it takes a village, it truly does. And women in other cultures are given a variety of support and they have, you know, mothers and in-laws living with them full time. And they have, my cousins live in Norway and they send a, a housekeeper slash nanny to the house for the first two years and what a treat incredible (laughs) but it's like we're the opposite where they're just as like you do this by yourself and if you don't do it well you can feel a sense of personal shame and guilt and failure (laughs) when it's a really unrealistic thing totally how was Levi sleeping and how was he in general like as as a baby so Levi, um, we went straight to formula, okay. so we didn't have to try to do that. Although, crazily enough, people, and, um, and there are online forums where you can, I guess, stimulate milk even when you've had a baby via surrogacy. And some women do it. Oh, my God. And I told my husband, husband, no way, Jose, don't even look at me. We are not discussing it. It's going to be on formula. <laughs> But we were lucky enough to get some donated breast milk as well. So we followed a very similar um, similar structure to Nolan. But Levi's a different child, and he's always been a lighter sleeper. We were able to get him to sleep through the night around seven weeks again. But he's regressed throughout, and even now he will wake up really easily in the night. And even like the past three nights, as an almost three-year-old, he'll wake up and call out to one of us. So I feel like his full nights of sleep are a lot more spotty than Nolan's ever have been. So it's just a different kid. We are the same parents. We did the same thing. But the child reacts differently to it as just being their own unique beings. And then I would say that it was more challenging to bond with Levi for me just because he was my second and my attention was very much pulled away to my demanding two-year-old who really is a mommy's boy through and through. And because I wasn't breastfeeding, which I think is the time where a lot of new moms do sit and bond because it's something that the father can't do. But because I wasn't breastfeeding and my husband was able to formula feed, he did take on a bulk of the feedings when Levi was really young. So I didn't have that immediate experience, just splitting my time and attention between the two kids that I did with Nolan. And was Nolan, was he pretty calm about having his brother enter the family or, or was there like a period where he was maybe throwing some tantrums or trying to get your attention away from the baby? Or was he pretty? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, Nolan was excited about baby brother and he wanted him to play with them right away. But definitely when my time and attention was on the baby, I would see him acting out and he is very verbal and he just talk, talk, talk at me and would, you know, he it's like he his demands because he was able to verbalize them. Are almost like I would have to respond to him first before the baby because the baby's just going to cry <laughs> and the two-year-old's going to throw a tantrum that's on a different level. So it was definitely an adjustment for all of us and it took a little bit. But even now, 
Nolan definitely is that first child who is comfortable in the spotlight and talk, 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 talk. And Levi's definitely more laid back. He takes a second seat to his big brother and we see his personality really change when Nolan's not around. He like defaults to him and copies and mimics him all the time. But when he's just one-on-one, he's an entirely different kid. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He will, he doesn't even try to get a lot of toys that he knows are Nolan's because he has to contend with getting it away from his big brother. <laughs> but the minute that his, the minute Nolan's gone, Levi goes right to the toys he knows that are Nolan's special toys and right to the things that he can't pry away from his brother it's fascinating to me smart boy Mm -hmm. well your story is incredible and you are just so strong and it's truly amazing to hear that you were able to get that family that you had envisioned even though you went through all of that all of that hardship um Is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners or any tips or any resources that really helped you through your journey? Yes, I think I now that my kids are almost three and five and we've gotten through the challenging part of having a family and then the second challenging part of the postpartum stage, I'm getting to the point where I'm truly enjoying motherhood that I feel like I'm able to relax and savor the moment while on a day-to-day basis I mean there's ups and downs and we're not quite thriving but we're beyond that surviving stage I feel like I've returned to my pre-motherhood self like I'm starting to come up for air and the only thing that's changed is the kids have just grown and I've gotten better at being a mom by doing it for longer periods of time so I just want to share that with all kinds of moms who are facing their own challenges and their own experiences that it does get better. And if you hang in there, um, you know, time passes and that first stage parenting is just so hard in so many ways, but it does get better over time. And I just encourage everyone to hang in there during the really intense, um, postpartum, infant years, toddler years, and get to know what kind of mom they are. I feel like I know now that I'm not necessarily a laid back mom. And I sometimes get a lot of FOMO on social media that feel like puts pressure on myself to take my kids lots of places and do lots of things. But I've learned to really know myself and evaluate how and where we choose to go as a family and set my own boundaries because for me, my joy is not toting my kids all over the place and having all these adventures. My happiest place is staying at home or close to home and finding smaller ways and easier ways to connect with them there. So I feel like that process just takes time and you have to stop comparing yourself to what other moms are doing um, to really get to that zone where you're happy and your kids are happy and you get there over time. Thanks so much for listening in. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at at the sleep sessions.